Hi, Mary. Hey, Allison. Welcome back to our second episode. This is very, very exciting. We are here with the American Girls podcast, where we dip into the wild world of American Girl fandom as far as we can handle it. And we look back on the American Girl books one by one and do a little pop culture talk along the way. Yeah, so we're representing the first generation of readers. So we have a very loose interpretation of girls. We're, I guess, women, definitely not girls to reframe Britney Spears. Shall we Shall we reveal kind of where this podcast came from? Yeah, I think it's time. I think we've, I think it's time. You know, there are different philosophies. You know, you think, therefore you exist. I think in terms of the conceptualization of this podcast, it's like we're both Molly's, therefore this pod exists. Therefore our friendship exists. True, true. Stakes are true. bigger than this podcast. Like <laughs> if we had met, first of all, just to like take you back, if you recall this, you generously offered to give me a tour of the campus where we both went to grad school. True. And I did arrive 10 minutes late because I got lost. And I know you're a very punctual person and have never forgotten that fact. And, you know, thank you for forgiving it, if not forgetting it. But one of our first conversations was about American Girl. True. And I did put to you or we put to each other the question of who are you in AG, which is a very fraught question. If you were interested in AG, if AG played any kind of role in your childhood slash adulthood, as it is in our case, you have a very clear answer to that question. Exactly. And ours is Molly. No questions asked. Yeah, for some people, you know, it might be sort of delightful trivia. For us, it's like a Rorschach and a bar for entry. It is. Like, if you come to us and say, I'm a Molly, chances are you're going to make it, you're, you're going to make a jump right onto my friend list. <laughs> right onto our yeah. friend list. We instantly like you. We think you're great. We've put these kind of questions to people that we've met in all parts of life. Like we once asked a group of new grad students, like, which founding father are you? And it was sort of a trick question. And someone came back at us and said, Dolly Madison. Which is the right answer. That is the right answer. So they passed. Someone else, we said, which, which March sister are you and Little Women? On a night when we were co-hosting a film festival called Hail to the Bale, Christian, Christian Bale Film Festival, double bill of newsies and little women some of his finest work and someone else came back to us and said i'm aunt march also the best answer. also great answer passed our friend group current friend group one of them basically we were attacked that's how i want to that's how i want to put this out there you're shaking your head and i know they're going to disagree with this yeah well this is kirsten behavior but continue. okay that's an insult to me, but I'm just going to push through that. They came at us with so much heat because they said that we are judgmental and, you know, we're stubborn. We think we're better than them because they are Samantha's. Yeah. And I would say all of those qualities should be attributed to Molly and Molly's in general. But is that not how we won the Great War? Yeah. You know what? Sorry. Good war. Good war. It's not great. I'm not getting into the greatest generation stuff no. on this show. Not doing it. But no. Molly would own a copy, like if she were still living now, bless her soul, she would be owning a copy of Greatest Generation. She'd yep. be demanding her AARP discount. Yep. By She'd the way, can I file. just tell you that I got a membership application to AARP in the mail yesterday? Wow. So they don't know about your podcast. Um, they don't. And also they don't know about me because I was ready to like burn my apartment down as a result of getting this. My partner sort of like was teasing me. He was like, you have a very important piece of mail. Like, please put <laughs> everything down. Stop what you're doing. And it was that Molly would be making some like inappropriate statements at American heritage sites across our great nation. She True. would be going to Hawaii on vacation and sort of like walking around saying thank you. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot that would probably go wrong with Molly in 2019, but 
there was something that went right with her for us. And that's kind of all that matters at this stage of the game. And we just in the name of fairness, we will let anyone who wants to plead their case about other AGs on this show within reason. And we offered it to these friends who basically started yelling at us and said there have to be ground rules or they're going to refuse to come on the show. Yeah. And I think that's actually a really sensible response yeah. to our level of emotion. They should bring their attorney. They should bring <laughs> a, like an exorcist, a healer, a Reiki person, like whoever they feel safe with, that's fine. You know, Today, we're thinking a little bit about book two, which is always the main character learns a lesson. So in this case, it's Felicity learns a lesson. And the question I want to pose to us is, are we going to learn anything? Probably not. Okay. Did we learn? I think I learned a little something. And we'll we'll delve into some of what we learned. Okay. I think we also got, and we will be talking about this in depth as we get to our pop culture segment, we got it, an essential truth, which stick with us. We're going to take you from tea parties of the 18th century to Firefest. Yes. It, you know what? It's been quite a week. And if you read book two of Felicity and you don't come away with instant Firefest connections, press stop on this podcast right now. <laughs> Please yeah. leave. And you know what? I just want to say we're going to get into this later. I am actually truly embarrassed by the amount of hits we allowed Ja Rule to have. Like watching these docs made me go to his Wikipedia page. And I am genuinely shocked and embarrassed. I'm going to say this you know, the way the way that culturally some people have rallied behind other forgotten or, you know, too soon discarded pop stars. We've never done that for Ashanti. No, <laughs> we've never done that for Ashanti. Like, it's wrong. I, I mean, okay, when this is getting off further afield, when Grease Live happened and Vanessa Hudgens was Rizzo and it was she had to go on the day her father passed and it was extremely dramatic and very very sad and I will always respect her for that I also was thinking why didn't Ashanti get a, a role automatically in this production for time served for all those music videos she had a bean with Ja Rule in which he forced her to be in a Grease motif and I'm sorry but like I hate to start the show with this I'm yelling I'm very upset White people did this. I'm sorry. Like, I had flashbacks watching this documentary. White people did this. People in my high school. I literally almost pulled out my high school yearbook, but I didn't want to be that traumatized. Everyone in my high school, literally, who wanted to be down. Now, keep in mind, I'm a white girl who went to a Catholic high school in Connecticut. So not down at all. And I knew that about myself. All these other kids in my class were literally like, any day above ground is a good day. And it's like, excuse me. Do not bring Tupac into this or like quoting Biggie or quoting Ja Rule. It's like, are you nuts? No. Are you? I just, I can't. I really can't. I'm just going to say, if you are part of the team that should be checking in on Ashanti, let us know. Yeah. If you, look, if you've touched down on Ashanti on Insta, on on the internet, anywhere where you go, deep web, whatever it takes, seen her at a 7-Eleven. I want to know. I need to know if she's safe. That's it. That's all I'm going to say. Much like an American girl, she has several eponymous albums. She has yeah. a Christmas album, you know, very similar actually to the structure of the book series, I would yeah. say. I mean, Ashanti, if I was making a Firefest AG, and we're going to get into this later, I guess I would make her, it would be called Me Ashanti. It would have nothing to do with Firefest, but I would make everyone who bought tickets for Firefest fund whatever career path Ashanti wanted to take at this time. Yeah, I agree with that. The moment when Ja Rule says it wasn't fraud, it was false advertising, <laughs> literally can't. I was like... I had a pause and I just turned to my partner. I was like, I'm deceased. This is over. I can't. And then I looked up his Wikipedia page and that what's really, really led to my spiral. That's when I was thinking back to my yearbook. Anyway. All right. That's enough about me. Speaking of school, let's go back to school with Felicity. Let's start the show or keep the show rolling, I should say. So as in every episode, we're going to have a segment where we get into the book and Allison's going to bless us with a rapid recap. And then we are going to hit our last segment where we trace something in pop culture that has to do with AG, even if loosely related. So let's jump to the book. And thank you so much for bringing the word loose into our conversation because this book is about loose teeth, loose mm-hmm. lips, and yeah. loose tea. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, She's, people are spilling a lot of tea in this book. We'll say that. So per the official recap, which gets at the main kind of thrust of the book and the plot, is this. 
Learning to serve tea at Miss Manderley's house is great fun, question mark. I added the question mark. Until Felicity's father decides that the king's tax on tea is unfair. He refuses to sell tea in his store, which if you recall from episode one, we talked about quite a bit, or to drink it at home. How can Felicity continue the tea lessons she loves and still be loyal to her father? Now, I want to give you our rapid recap, which is to remind you that Felicity is a nine-year-old girl. She's living and growing up in colonial Virginia in the 1770s, but the revolution is coming. Her 1776 moment is coming. And Felicity has a loose tooth. Both of these things are given equal weight in this 65 or so page book, which not only gets into women's education, social justice, very little, and friendship, and how to serve tea, and how to do embroidery, all these things given equal measure. And we will get into a few of them. Yes. And she makes a friend from, air quotes, across the pond. She does. And one thing that really drove us to make this podcast was as a vehicle to think about how friends are represented in books. And once again, not sure she's a great friend. Nope. And we're going to get into that. I mean... It's a tough move. If you did this to me, I'll just say it at the outset, if you pulled what this chick does in this book to me at any age, yeah, we would be done. Yeah, there's a lot of themes about loyalty and felicity that are really interesting because, again, everything is given equal weight in this book. Like, will her father be part of the growing revolution against the king? Will Felicity gossip about her friend? Both things equally terrifying in this book. Will she look good in a brunette wig? Uh, the answer is no. The answer but... is a hard no. And I'm happy that they clarified that for us in book two. And we, so it's interesting. One of the ways that the books as a whole try to educate you about the past is always by having this book about schooling. And obviously by the time we get to Molly, it's more, it's 20th century schooling. It's more like what we're used to. But this book kind of has, I would call it a proto-feminist moment, question mark, where Felicity is asking her mother why her education only extends to stitching, learning how to make apple butter, and serving tea. Yes. We open the book with a kind of insane and to me horrifying scene about the realities of making apple butter, which is a thing that I enjoy in real life. But now learning how it was made in 18th century, I know the cost. I'll say that. <laughs> and and just, just to keep, you know, the family's privilege in the frame at all times, this isn't like something that they need to make. No. This is like, it's not like they're like, <laughs> oh my God, if we don't make these candles, we're literally in darkness. No. This is a 911. They're not even making straight up butter. You know what I'm saying? No. And once again, I think we're going to go around you know, to a few different places, dark and light with Mrs. Merriman, who's Felicity's mother. Yeah. And she has some real dark quotes in this book. Okay. Let me just back up for a second. So I read this book while you were away. And I will say that in the life of our friendship, every time one of us goes on vacation or on a trip, it's kind of a cry. I can't speak for you, but it's like a crisis point for me where I'm like, how am I going to contact you? <laughs> yeah. If something comes up, if I have a thought about Ashley Simpson, what am I supposed to do with myself? So I'm home reading this book and I'm reading these quotes. I'm going to share one of you with you in a moment. And it's some of the toughest dialogue I've read about motherhood and relationships between mothers and daughters. <laughs> Like, seriously, I was like, oh, my God, this is making me think about things both real and imagined and serious and not. But the scene, the book opens with Felicity hiding on the roof or like climbing to the roof to pick the best apples to come to make apple butter. And the mom, like, of course, her little sister sees her on the roof and panics and gets the mom. The mom <laughs> calls her down is like, OK, you have to come in here and start stirring the apples in this mush. And they get into it, and, and Felicity basically says, apple butter is great, but it's really not worth all of this work. It's just sure. not. And, you know, like, as we said, this is not an essential product for their household. It'd be the equivalent of me, like, soda streaming with my mom because I love <laughs> seltzer. It's like, you know what I'm saying? It's that they're like, they're not like, Felicity, we need water to live. It's like, Felicity, we need this seltzer. Do you not understand? We need this. And Felicity's like, look, seltzer is great, but... I'm fine with water. Like, I will live with that. And the mom says the following, quote, 
I know that I've provided for my family and that pleases me. (laughs) Caring for a family is a responsibility and a pleasure. It will be your most important task and one that you must learn to do well. I want you to be a notable housewife when you are grown. A notable housewife runs her own household smoothly so that everyone is happy and healthy. Her life is private and quiet. She is content doing things for her family. That no one ever sees, said Felicity, but many lovely things are private and hidden At which point Felicity's mom whips out a knife, cuts an apple in half, reveals an air quotes flower in the apple and is like, that's me. And what this left me with is like, okay, in book one, we learn Felicity is a horse. And in book two, we learn her mom is an apple. This seems absolutely bonkers to me. So we we spoke briefly in episode one about our qualifications and not qualifications to analyze these books. Yes. Fair? Yes. Important to return to. So... Once upon a time, one of us wrote a dissertation on the history of household tasks and home economics. It's Hint, me. not me. Yeah, that was you. <laughs> um, so we've we've both done our fair amount of thinking about these kinds of issues. So our first thought was, of course, this book was written by someone heavily influenced by the feminine mystique, which was published by Betty Friedan. Valerie Tripp would be roughly contemporaneous with her. So that makes sense that she's thinking about books and experiences where women feel really sort of trapped because they're kept to domestic tasks. But there's this pressure to make it seem pleasant and lovely and something you absolutely always enjoy. Um, but Mrs. Merriman, I think I'm I'm looking for more kind of Pixar type winks to adults reading these books to children or kind of more acknowledgement of her as as a real person right. and we don't get that no she's su- she's such an archetype here it's it's really a shock and yeah i think i was waiting for this to seem more nuanced than it was and to get some kind of story like it would be great if at some point mrs Marion was like you know like i also kind of was rebellious when I was your age or I also question this but I have found a way to have my own interests within the roles and things I need to do for my family we don't get that this lady's like loving her invisible labor both for the labor and for the invisibility of it and it it's hard to read as a 32 year old person in 2019 which is not to say that there are women who wouldn't agree with Mrs. Merriman now but that I don't I think what's especially challenging, too, because we, we've talked about this before, but it's probably going to come up every single book. There's these people orbiting the Merriman family, you know, the people who are included in the portraits in the front of the book, who are also laboring in the household, in the store, in the barnyard. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about one of the spinoff books a bit later. But there are enslaved people living and working in the households with the Merrimans, and What's actually really shocking is even the books that were written well after the 1990s that are from this series really don't engage those different layers at all. Mm-hmm. And it's like pretty like children can actually really handle those distinctions. And it's particularly important to tell the truth about how those things worked. So to pretend like the mother, you know, not that she isn't doing a lot of work, but her work is of a very particular sort in the household. And it's a very, yeah, yeah. I mean, she's a very privileged worker within her time and within her class and certainly within her household. And yeah, we'll get into this more later. So I don't want to super get into this now, but the way that enslaved people are treated in book two is in some ways even more egregious than book one. Um, Because there is an enslaved person sort of in the scene. Yes, where the mother is explaining how fun it is to work and not be seen as a person. Exactly. So it's like there's this weird moment where the mom's like, isn't invas- invisible labor amazing because it's such a thing you get to do for your family? And meanwhile, there's an enslaved woman in the background probably rolling her eyes. So it's a weird thing where they're hitting you over the head with invisible labor. And they sort of the point I think you're supposed to take from this is that that's not desirable or that's not what Felicity wants. And yet she's a foil. It's yeah, a, a foil to Felicity. But they're hitting you over. They're actually disproving that point by having invisible labor in the book that they keep invisible even more than book one at least with book one we talk about marcus we never learn the names of any of these women in book two 
I, I think what's interesting is having read cookbooks from that time period and recipes or receipts where women would actually learn how to do these household tasks. There's two different things happening that are both sort of right and wrong about women's education of the time, which is Felicity asks her mother why she can't learn like a boy to read Greek and Latin. And it's like, trust us as two overeducated women. Like, that's not actually super helpful at any time. Nope. But we'll put that on a shelf. There's this other thing happening, which is that, one, she's going to get still a privileged women's education. She is still going to learn how to read and to write and to do very specific genteel tasks. But the other piece of this is actually just learning how to run a household in the 18th century was an entire education and was incredibly complex and required a lot. And that a lot did not include apple butter. Right. Yeah. So I think what you're pointing us to is that this scene could sort of ask young girls to appreciate the complexity of Mrs. Merriman's task as a privileged white woman in this um, location. But at the same time, what the task that they've chosen to show us is actually not super skill heavy. And no. It, it figures it's basically just grunt manual labor they talk quite a bit about how hot it is in the kitchen and how sweaty felicity gets just stirring this pot again and again and again and so you don't get from this that there's incredible skill required that mrs merriman is demonstrating the skill that's been passed down from her mother because what you get from this scene is that felicity is being asked to take a place in a generational cycle of women that have gone back presumably many generations mrs merriman mentions that her mother was from england and so you have kind of this like imperial family generational history of world of women and felicity is resistant to take part in it in the role prescribed to her but it does invite kind of interesting themes about mothers and daughters that do go throughout different books and you know not just children's books adult literature certainly as well but there's such a lack of nuance that you don't feel like mrs merriman's a real person yeah even as they're you know fleshing out felicity as a real girl who has you know real vulnerabilities and fears and desires mrs merriman can't really meet her where she's at because she's such an archetype yeah and again i think these things are are more striking when you're an adult reading it because truth be told this mother would probably be younger than both of us mm -hmm. that is terrifying in terms seriously of terrifying aging and chronology of the period i was actually um, yeah i was actually thinking about mrs merriman today and like i sort of feel that she would have been a mommy blogger where, I mean, it's not insane that someone who's 31 and 32 would have children this age. I think it's shocking no. to me because I'm in, like, a prolonged adolescence and, like, living on cereal and seltzer and God knows. The idea of being a parent is so terrifying to me right now that just reading this and thinking this woman is probably younger than us is compounding my terror. I, I think it gets at a bigger question, too, which is, you know, also very much of the 1990s, which... In that period, people were starting to talk about third wave feminism. And I feel like part of what's lurking behind these books is this idea that different movements that push women towards different directions or advance different kinds of causes have to come out of generational friction and friction between different types of movements. And I don't know that that's necessarily what people believe now, because you look at important cultural moments like Occupy Wall Street, or you think about Black Lives Matter, and I don't think they're being framed as much as generational tension. I completely agree with you. I think there's also something kind of dark, actually, in thinking about we learn the politics of Felicity's father far more in this book, and we also come to understand that both Ben and Mr. Merriman are increasingly getting involved in local politics, which by that time is organizing against the crown and leading towards what we think of as the American Revolution. <laughs> And it's kind of really interesting that, you know, only Felicity gets to be the woman that kind of gets to dip into mm -hmm. this, you know, kind of this presumption that someone her mother's age is not interested in that because she is a woman of that generation. And I think that's, of course, unfair because her mother would be a peer of someone like Abigail Adams. Yeah, yeah. I also think it's striking that for the the ways that we see men and women in this book dealing with politics when you think about their bodies. So 
both the father and Ben get to experience politics by speaking about it in the store, speaking about it around the dinner table. It's an intellectual exercise for them. They're using um, political philosophy. They're having conversations with other men. For women in the book, Mrs. Merriman included, it only emerges really when you think about it's kind of a indirect way of thinking about it. But there's a lot of descriptions of the ways that their bodies are confined by the clothes that they wear. And it's not described in a way that feels liberating or it's something that they're choosing because it makes them feel beautiful as like privileged ladies who can be concerned with such things. It's really to remind you, oh, they're constrained. And you're right. This is the same time period as Abigail Adams. We're not getting a story about someone who's not engaging in those confining things. So even as Felicity gets to eavesdrop and hear all these different things, it really does seem like even when she's the most explicitly political person, her political act is overturning a teacup. It's something that it's a physical act. It's not a mental act. Yeah. And in a really smart, smart move in terms of helping to kind of get Felicity into this political moment, Felicity starts attending a school where she is learning these basic skills with other genteel ladies who are her age. And she meets these sisters, Annabelle and Elizabeth, who are from England proper. So they have come over to the colonies more recently they're not second gen like Felicity is. Felicity was born in the colony. She was born in Virginia. And they kind of use like the petty tension between Annabelle and Felicity as a way of talking about the growing tensions between the colony and mm-hmm. England. And I wondered what you thought about that. I thought it was, I actually really liked that part of the book. And I was sort of all ready for Annabelle because my partners only, again, were all like, trying to remember back as 30 year olds back to being nine or 10. Her only memory of this was that she remembered Annabelle, not her only memory, but she remembered Annabelle and told me that she thought she liked Annabelle. So I was trying, I was all set to both like Annabelle and was curious about, you know, this person I obviously love loves Annabelle. So maybe I'm going to like her too. And then (laughs) she kind of saunters into this book and she was not for me to say the least, but I'm prepared for you to say how much you liked her, but I'm going to stall you on that one and just say that I thought it was really sharp of the young girls to come in because when you have children making these kind of way over the top distinctions between um, people from London and the colonists, it, it feels like a caricature come to life because adults in real life, well, Maybe this is completely wrong, but to have kids have (laughs) absolutely no qualms about trying to appear polite and just sort of keeping it real and being way over the top with it. Like, you know, you guys don't know how to dress, whatever she says to them. She picks up on the the clothing difference and basically treats them like they're the absolute frontier because that's perhaps how she thinks of them. It feels believable that younger people would do that in a way that that kind of overt insult wouldn't fly in, say, Mr. Merriman's store. True. And, you know, I love to, it also kind of brings up another kind of tension that's very real when you're nine, which is, of course, now there seems to be only one young man in the entire colony, and it's Ben. And, you know, Annabelle doesn't know that Felicity legit, like, already had his bridges. Like, she's already, she's already developed a friendship. They have secrets. You know, she was taking his good church pants. But Annabelle has a crush on him. Annabelle has a deep deep crush on him like it's tiger beat level infatuation like it's so over the top (laughs) like i can imagine a world in which annabelle pulls a deborah samson Mm -hmm. deborah samson was a woman who ended up dressing as a man and joining the american revolution she would be on the other side but she would do it to get people out of the way vis-a-vis joe in the show you to move people out of her way to get to ben no questions asked I know that's a lot of layers to work through, but I think if you recall the deep narcissism and insanity of Annabelle, you'll get it. I think that's spot on. And she's just, she's <laughs> so self-absorbed and basically has this whole attitude that the colonists are trash unless you're cute, which is like the Ben story. And <laughs> it's just weird. I mean, I have a lot of questions about Ben still, which is that we learn in this book that he comes from a wealthy family and he's apprenticing with the Merrimans. So I think I think all we've learned about Ben that I really feel safe discussing is that he's comfortable with liars. Whoa. 
That's actually true. I mean, <laughs> yeah. and, and his friendship with Felicity has deepened where now he actually makes jokes with her at the dinner table that only she will get about, is it the church pants again? Or is it like, oh, I'm sure you could. Yeah. yeah. So he's like now at the level where they have inside jokes. He's coming. He was so shy in book one that they were like, what's up with this guy? And now he's like at dinner making jokes He's made himself right at home. And it's like, okay, do you even need yeah. this job? To me, Ben is like a later years cast member of the real world where remember they would make them have jobs <laughs> and it was like, okay, guys, like you're going to build a park. And it was complete nonsense or, you know, the time when they worked at the radio st- or the the local community TV station, which is my favorite real world job. That playground they built had to be dismantled. I remember that quite really? vividly. I think what's so critical for us to point out about Ben, though, other than him being just like a heartthrob by default, is it also plays into something, again, critical that we understand as adult historians and didn't as children. There's this whole piece of it, which is that Ben is white. And so, of course, he's at the dinner table when actually there was pretty considerable friction globally in places that had formal apprenticeships between apprentices and people who had apprentices working for them, masters, different kinds of folks. And this idea that he's just kind of part of the family and he's sitting at the table and that it's almost an equal relationship is not real. It's definitely not real. And it never would have been real in the time in almost any circumstance. So it feels like a, in some ways one of the biggest licenses they take is to basically treat him like a sort of family member. It's a weird role he plays in the family where he has to have enough intimacy in the family that he can be privy to their private conversations and be present enough that we can see that he has inside jokes with Felicity clearly as a friend. But he's allowed into these private family spaces that feel so intimate and are it's kind of jarring sometimes because you just know he never would have actually been there. It's also obnoxious that, of course, the core kind of thing that causes friction between this group of potential young girlfriends is a boy. Yeah, I've never liked that move. And I'm not just saying that because... I'm a queer person. I just don't like the way that it demeans stories with girl-centered stories to make their agency be entirely about arguing about a boy because that's never been my life story even when I've had crushes on boys when I was in school. Like I read these books and I reflect back on, you know, when you read about Annabelle, it is kind of, it does make you think back like, wow, I remember when I had crushes on like this boy would make me mixtapes and whatever. But it was never the focus of my life. And I feel like they're losing something about the the dynamic nature of a young girl's life and all the interests that she has by making her entirely defined by how she feels about a boy and their conflicts about a boy. Like they could have had a conflict about the empire and the oncoming revolution <laughs> that they want to hit us over the head with and really make sure we're getting this history and centered around <laughs> something else. Like it didn't have to be, it could have just been the store, right? Like Felicity's dad right? has a really prominent um, store in the town where people are getting their basic goods. Why wouldn't that be enough to have Annabelle basically throw shade at Felicity's dad? That would have done it. We don't need this boy in the mix. And here's, I, okay, so we've entitled this segment snitches get stitches because they're learning embroidery but here's the thing we're supposed to see the kind of arc of this book be the growing relationship between felicity and elizabeth who becomes her bff over the series elizabeth is not a good friend she's for sure not i mean i love the something i love about this these series of books is that they take really seriously the idea of female friendship which is something that's really important to me in my life and obviously like our relationship is important. Our friendship's really important to me. But when you're reading these books, I love reading about friendships. This does not teach you a good lesson about what it means to be a friend. <laughs> I mean, the no. last book, it didn't either, because basically what we found out last book from Ben and Felicity's friendship was that if you're willing to lie for your friend, that's an essential characteristic of being a friend. Now, look, I will say there are times when we li- when we are willing to lie on each other's behalf. Like, that just goes without saying. But this book takes the complete opposite tack, which is Elizabeth basically outs the Merrymans as being revolutionaries. I, like, but, I mean, they don't call the it that. Is, but the thing is, that was so completely unnecessary because 
they <laughs> overhear Mr. Merriman having this conversation with town men about the fact that he is not going to sell tea. There were multiple men present in that conversation. Presumably, this would have gotten around Williamsburg pretty fast that they were going to boycott yeah. Mr. Merriman's store. This would have reached Elizabeth's family without Elizabeth running home and sharing with her parents that Mr. Merriman is clearly on the path to being a patriot and supporting what will become the revolution. There was no need for her to disclose this information. Like they, if she had sat down for five seconds and been like, okay, I would love to tell my parents. Now we don't know what's <laughs> going on in her home life. We don't know about like the, the psychology of her family. Like is Annabelle the favorite and she wants to win some favor with her parents or she tells them this information. I don't know. Like this is where my head's going. But I would have sat back and been like, whoa, Felicity's a new friend, but I can tell a really important friend. And this is something that's a shock to her. I'm with her when she hears this information for the first time. Let me not go home and share this with my family because they're <laughs> going to find out anyway. Let me instead sort of like be with my friend. Yeah. And it's interesting because she's both disloyal to her sister with regards to her crush yeah. on Ben. Like she spills that immediately. And then when she sees that her other friend's father is involved in duplicitous activity, she's like, I'm also going to share <laughs> <Yeah>. that secret. <laughs> Who is she loyal but to? I'm- like, literally no one. The wigs? <laughs> like, is that her thing? <laughs> like, I guess I'm wondering if this is foreshadowing the see something, say something <laughs> yeah. state. Like Valerie Tripp was trying to prepare us for that. She was like, girls. Yes. You're going to meet a man named Edward Snowden in the future. And he's going to spill all and you're going to need to be prepared. I will say five points for this book. Elizabeth and Felicity get very mean girl and they start calling Annabelle Bananabelle. I don't like that. And Annabelle basically says, I don't like that. She sets a boundary and ultimately the women do respect That's it. That's true. And I like that. In this I book. was actually really mad at Felicity and friend for doing <laughs> that. I was disappointed because... In book two, I don't want to say I've started liking Felicity, but I'm warming to her. Like, I sort of sympathized with her after the Mrs. Merriman encounter. Like, I would, I too would not <laughs> yeah. like to be relegated to a life of invisible labor and sort of feeling, having to like perform happiness about this. But then when she's throwing on the wigs, now look, would we all be tempted to throw on some 18th century wigs if left unattended? Sure. Maybe. But the to act like Annabelle and like fawning over Ben, like I just feel like when you have a crush on someone and you're an early teen, I don't know how, I don't remember how old Annabelle is. It's so vulnerable and so dark in so many ways where it's like your whole <laughs> life is embarrassing. This is what I remember about being a teenager and it's early teen. It's so embarrassing to just like be alive. So to have this nine-year-old dunking on you, like honestly, so unnecessary. <laughs> Even though I don't like Annabelle, I was sympathetic to her in that moment it felt unfair I, I I agree with you about the wigs I think that was a pivotal moment in us understanding Annabelle and I'm kind of excited that we get to see those relationships grow over the next few books but I also kind of look back with a, a hint of cynicism which is that as they wrote more and more of these books they made certain friends and peripheral characters more important so that they could sell dolls of those people of as well and I also learned, so I mentioned that I read a spinoff book. And so these came out progressively after the series got really, really big. Because Felicity's later in terms of the OGs, not historically, but the way they were released in the 90s. And so I want to tell you a bit about Felicity's new sister. Uh, wait, other than the one that we've already met? Yeah, so this is not Nan. So Felicity has younger siblings, Nan and William. This is Polly. Oh, which is a great 18th century name. name. So what I took away from Felicity's new sister is like, one, we learn that grandpa who's living. So grandpa has a plantation. Uh, No. Correct. And so Felicity is kind of chafing about the duties she has caring for her two existing younger siblings because guess what? Mrs. Merriman is adding to the pack. She's pregnant. Uh, nervous so there's (laughs) there's conflict because a nosy neighbor who i respect is trying to tell mrs merriman that she shouldn't take felicity and gang to the father's plantation where felicity can run around and act more recklessly because she's too close to her due date mrs merriman gets pushed to the edge she goes to the plantation anyway they fall out of a carriage (gasps) 
She has Polly early, but I'm going to say this. The entire time, there has been one voice of reason, and guess who it came from? Nan. Polly. No. (laughs) (laughs) Polly's not born yet. If you recall, the character who's hanging in the background, you know, by choice of author and illustrator, Rose now has a name, the maidservant slash cook self-described in the bio piece. She now also delivers babies. And this entire time she's prophesizing what's going to happen. She's like, this trip is a bad idea. Check. This baby's coming early. Check. I'm going to have to deliver this baby. Check. No one's going to actually care for it but me. Check. And I think part of, you know, what we were getting at with the Ben conversation about apprentices and then thinking about how enslaved people are and are not talked about in this series, there's this reality that, like, Rose for sure would have her own family Mm -hmm. also. Where's Rose? Where's Marcus? We We don't know. But that gets us back to, again, the brewing, pun intended, revolution that's happening behind the scenes. Yes. And... Which is essentially a tantrum. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I and I say that with the understanding that we have done our homework. We understand the way people have written about the American Revolution, and I think for New Englanders, it's good for our growth that this is centered in Virginia. Right. It's not about us. It should be, but it's not. So that's where we are. Just so everyone's aware, this is the first book where we're getting actual references to real live events in the American Revolution. And as we said, this is not the Boston Tea Party we're talking about, which for those of you playing at home, happened on December 16th, 1773. Girl, I will drop dates on this podcast. I don't care. Uh, Apparently. I don't care. The Tea Party we're talking about is the Yorktown Tea Party, which took place on November 7th, 1774. I'm just going to say like a lot later. (laughs) Our New England, like, preference and pride is coming way out on this podcast. If you live in the great state of Virginia and you want to be upset with us, please direct all of your emails to Allison Horrocks. Thank you. Like, I'm, Thank you. God bless. Like, I'm proud of you. I think that's great. And also, they um, only threw two small tea- chests of tea into the York River. So I feel like, if anything else, it was kind of a symbolic. I mean, yes, they threw tea, but it wasn't of the same scale. I'm just going to say this. Two years prior to all of this you know what's oh coming God, Allison. <laughs> we won't go far into this because we need to get to Firefest. but speaking of fire in 1772 colonists in the wonderful realm of rhode island burned the gatsby if you don't know about that y'all need to do some work i feel like a lot of people probably aren't up on rhode island history And I mean, that's a deficit that we're all dealing with because none of the American girls were from there, which is a huge Mm -hmm. mistake. Um, I mean, like, is there competition over which of these events really mattered? No, because Boston kind of won. And I'm not saying that in like the Tom Brady is the goat way, which, by the way, I don't have any stake in that. But it is just also true. I yeah I mean all I knew growing up was the Boston Tea Party and even still into grad and into and through grad school I've heard of the Yorktown Tea Party at some point but it's not something that I'm super steeped in see what I did there Uh, excellent pun yeah yeah so here's here's really where this got interesting for us a kind of little known aspect of a lot of these events leading up to the formal declaration in 1776 was that colonists who were sort of English in origin, when they would do these disobedient acts, they would dress up in what they thought indigenous people wore. So they would wear certain kinds of clothing, decorate their faces, things like that. Um, There is a really, really important book called Playing Indian on this, if that's something that interests you. But basically they would wear these indigenous motifs. And before you judge too hard, Go on Instagram and do hashtag Coachella. That's a mic drop if ever I've heard one. Which is not to say that this is correct behavior or behavior that should be condoned, but just to say that it has not disappeared and to say that it is still a way that certain groups of people take on other cultures to do what they see as something like counter, you know, counterculture, disobedient. Mm -hmm. But this got us asking a really big question. And this is the real mic drop. Can men keep secrets and organize parties? Spoiler alert, no. And that's how we got 
from Mr. Merriman to Billy McFarland. Yeah, let's get into this. So for our pop culture AG this episode, we need to get into Fire Festival. And no one has asked us nope, to do that. Not part of the explicit mission of the show. Guess what? We're doing it. We need it. We need to do this. Allison, please take it away. So I think we all understand by this point that Felicity would have asked her dad to take out some equity right. in the store or some other yep. equivalent so that she could go to Firefest. Yep. And before you think this is really crazy, which it is, we really got thinking about the different parallels because I think part of where Firefest was such a cultural phenomenon was people who were kind of responding to it on social media were saying, who are the real victims here because it's all people of privilege? And I think you could actually say much the same of aspects of the American Revolution. Like Mr. Merriman is protesting his lack of freedom, his oppression, while there are literally enslaved people, marginalized women, indigenous people who are being dispossessed all surrounding him. And he's like, yeah, but what about me? I didn't get the cabana I was promised. It's true. And I mean, in both Firefest and in the world of the American Revolution we're reading about, there's a complete erasure of the labor of non-white people. And I think the only part of the Firefest documentary, and just full disclosure, I've only seen the Netflix one, which was more than enough for me, but I will watch the Hulu one. The thing, the only time of real sadness on my part was hearing about the woman um, whose restaurant had to work around the clock to feed all of the festival ne'er-do-wells and, you know, who lost all of her retirement to pay her own workers and make sure they were paid. And then, of course, the day laborers who never got paid. Those are the only, like, actual victims of this crime. Everyone else, it's like, I'm sorry that you're dream vacation of seeing blink 182 on a beach didn't work out but like that's on you you voluntarily signed up for that i have zero sympathy for anyone involved including the evian water man just putting that out there i'll say this i i have an unnatural sort of possessive quality around the hadid sisters and i yeah (laughs) i do feel i do feel like bella hadid was hoodwinked Allison, no, let me, okay, two points. This is like when we were studying the American Revolution for real in grad school and you came out on the side of the loyalists, okay? This is, I'm not saying it's that level bad, but if you're here, if you're about to wind up to defend (laughs) the influencers, I'm going to have to press pause on this whole podcast project because they are the only people who state like chris jenner you know the minute something came in the inbox that was like can we talk to kendall about her experience (laughs) for this fire fest documentary chris was like delete not doing it erasing the evidence the 250k check cleared that's all we need moving on these influencers knew exactly what they were doing they're culpable period so i think there's an important distinction though between the influencers who were paid to do a specific job which was they were paid to promote a product that did not yet exist but that that was i think not within their realm of responsibility to understand and the people who actively spread lies and misinformation through social media once it was clear what it was you sound like you're their attorney, and I just want you to sit with that if you could for a moment. Like, I know what the K's mean to you, and on some level to me, but more on a level to you. You know, when you finished grad school, the gift you did give to yourself was to watch all of Keeping Up with the Kardashians from the beginning. And I respect that about you. I say that as someone who really respects that choice. However, I guess I'm- <laughs> I think it is blinding you. Like, I'm sorry, Mrs. Justin Bieber was in the mix. Are you prepared to blame her? You know, I'm not. I'm not. And it's Allison. interesting. And I know no. I come down on the wrong side of things sometimes. Um, but I, I, I think it begs a question of what do you think you're selling or what do you think you're promoting when you put your name to something? And I think with both the American Revolution and Firefest, it was people projecting a fantasy and one happened to work out and the other didn't. 
I think that's fair. I mean, I still think the influencers are absolutely responsible. I will buy that more about the American Revolution than Firefest. Period. Okay. Okay. But let's put it this way, right? If we were still all speaking with slightly more English accents and this was part of the Commonwealth, God bless the Queen. Yes. And not its own free sovereign nation, air quotes. Um, I think to some degree we would be talking about Ben Franklin as a propagandist and an influencer who failed, who sadly was hanged in public. I mean, we'd be talking about him completely differently. No, but is because, he not an influencer? No, because he's not like an. Inf- I would say he's more like. I think you're painting him as more of a Billy McFarland, and in that case, his magnesis was actual plates of colonial currency that were successful. Unlike the Magnesis card, which was a GD scam. I don't think Ben Franklin was a scammer for the ages. I think he was like a hype man <laughs> who just backed weird stuff that didn't always pan out. It hap- Like turkeys? Yeah. The turkey didn't pan out. Like that didn't work out. But he did. He just happened no. to back some things that worked. But I think he had the intellectual framework behind it. And I think he had people who held him accountable at different moments in a way that for some reason Billy McFarland didn't. I'm no, but see, I'm I'm comparing Ben Franklin to an influencer, which is totally different from a Billy McFarland who is a huckster and a scammer and a capitalist. An influencer is an is an icon. Okay, but let me say this. They never showed up at the actual event to defend themselves. And Ben Franklin True. was in London and went to court and actually defended the American cause to straight up monarchists. And he actually was like in the belly of the beast. It would be like if Bella Hadid or Mrs. Bieber or Kendall got on that table instead of Billy McFarlane when he's like, I don't know, find a tent. We're figuring it out. If, <laughs> if Kendall was there and got up on the table and basically said, hey, look, Um, I know it looks like we're serving you, um, cheese on bread in crappy styrofoam takeaway containers and we promised you luxury meals and so on, but this is actually going to work out. Here's my reasoning and I'm willing to take questions and feedback and respond in kind. Ben Franklin did that. Like he actually was at court. He was defending the American cause at various times. So I cannot let this stand. Ben Franklin is not a Hadid and he is not a Kendall Jenner. But I will say this. I will I will pose this to you. If you were a person who was enslaved in 1775 and still enslaved by someone else in 1880, or, or that would be too long, <laughs> 1800, would you not think the American Revolution was a scam? 100%. There are probably people okay. now who think the American Revolution was a scam, <laughs> rightfully so, because they are not experiencing the rights of citizenship that our founding documents say are owed to them. But that's a different conversation than whether... Ben Franklin is an influencer. <laughs> he is not an influencer, but I will back you in saying that there are many people for whom the American Revolution had virt- made virtually no difference in their lives. It's kind of like when you go back and read letters from people living during the Civil War, and when you pick up the letter, you think, oh my God, they lived during the Civil War. Like This is going to be all over their correspondence. It's all they're going to be wanting to talk about. And if anything, they're like, I don't know, can you send more jam? Like It's like totally banal <laughs> stuff. Or they're like... Oh, weird. That war is still happening. That's so weird. And it has like nothing to do with their lives. So I think we have this fantasy sometimes as people who are for whom history is important or we like to think with it that if you look at an era that's defined by a really major event like the American Revolution, that it's all the people living in that time we're thinking about. And really, they were probably thinking, hey, I want to make apple butter. It's time. I need it. So have we been too unfair to Mrs. Merriman? Uh, hmm. I think she captures a truth, but I think because I think I think there are people who do find joy in that very specific way. But I think part of what we're coming up against is we understand that these are books written really carefully to disseminate certain messages to young girls. So it's like we sniff out what this message is and it's kind of not great. It's kind of not great. And I think we're not giving her enough credit in terms of I do think that especially a woman of her class who had her education and her access to say books and other things and conversation. If she's hearing about her husband talking about political economy, I don't think it's unreasonable for us to expect that she would have extended that 
and connected those own dots to her personal economy. I really think it's it's reasonable to expect that she would have at least had a conversation with herself about that. And she may have come out on the side of it of, no, actually, I really like and I find meaning in the running a household that's actually a very skill-heavy responsibility and job. And it's meaningful to my role in this family. And I think it's kind of unfair that she lived in the time of Abigail Adams, whose letters to John Adams have filled at least our imaginations with this vision of, you know, a kind of womanhood that's certainly also possible. If you read other books, there's a book called Revolutionary Backlash. That's amazing because it also kind of introduces you to other women of this era who were thinking about politics and wanted to be actors in it. Um, But I do think, you know, if you're living in a household, you are connecting those dots between a political economy outside your house and the very freedoms and ideas that are organizing the the household in which you live. Also, maybe she was actually clever in her own way and didn't believe any of this, but was like, the more I can delegate to Felicity, the sooner I'm out of this labor cycle. So maybe instead of a mommy blogger, she's like an Instagram scammer and she's displacing her labor onto others, in which case... That's fine. I think the hint that we get with the growing family is she's going more of a Duggar trajectory where she's like, once they outnumber us by a lot, they're their own ecosystem. I, that's terrifying. (laughs) Anything involving the Duggars is terrifying to me. As you know, I can't emotionally, spiritually handle any of that. But that actually, it probably was happening in the time. The Duggars got that idea from somewhere, and it could have been Mrs. Merriman, so far as we know. Uh, last thing I want to say, and this is something I've seen in pop culture that's explicitly AG. So we are recording in January 2019, and they just announced, American Girl just announced their their Girl of the Year, whose name is Blair. I just want to take a beat on that. Her name is Blair. This is a description. Like many girls today, Blair loves watching cooking shows and spending time with her mom in the kitchen. Sound familiar? She looks for inspiration online and saves her favorite decorating and cooking ideas. And like many of us, she's learning balance between time on a tablet and real life connections. I'm not learning that well. Continue. I failed that. But that's that's the end (laughs) of the description. But... If you go on and read a lot of the advertising materials, um, there's a there's a real sense that what defines a girl of 2019 is the ability to multitask and to manage screen time. So we were talked last week about the other American girl who they can only Amer- imagine an American girl by sending her to outer space. And now we're back on Earth with Blair. But <laughs> the thing that we imagine for American girl girls' lives is managing screen time and multitasking and it seems like there's also a line that says Blair teaches girls that real world interactions are the best kind of social media like heroines of the ancient world were born out of like the foreheads of gods like she was born out of a Pinterest board one thousand percent like like a Pinterest board produced a person and that's the girl of the year yeah and it's, it's a lot. She wants to be an event planner. Her family lives in the Hudson Valley and they convert a barn on the property to be an event space. So my question is like, is she a future Firefest organizer slash influencer? I would say, of course. And then I think if we were to kind of spring her and Felicity into the same universe somehow, Felicity would be that chick who's like, I'm only on Facebook. <laughs> you yeah. know? You know, Blair is doing like 30 part Insta stories every single day. And Felicity's like, I watch, but I don't contribute. Yeah. You know, and what I Blair's mean? probably got five Instagram accounts, like yeah. four are fake. One is to like basically catfish other local event planners and take them down. Annabelle for sure has a Finsta. Oh, God. Annabelle for absolute sure has a Finsta, which she's using as a deep emotional. <laughs> and it's like she's also probably who gets really deep in her feelings around 2 a.m. and posts an Instagram story where she's talking directly to camera from her pillow about like what went wrong in the day and why doesn't Ben ever notice me and like this that and then wakes up the next morning is like sorry guys post back to the story like sorry guys you know just was feeling some stuff last <laughs> night I'm fine. Meanwhile Felicity's heading out to the barn doing a selfie with Penny and posting it felt cute might delete later. And then you know some other bully in the community is like horse left. <laughs> I was gonna say. 
It's so dark. Just to clarify. Yeah. I mean, oh. So the next time we get together, we will be talking about Felicity having a kind of party, right? Yeah. I mean, I would love to say it's a party in the USA episode, but we're not there yet. We're sadly not there yet. But I can't wait. And I, you know what? I just want to say, if people think we're coming down too hard on Felicity, like we are keeping an open mind. But our job and our task to you is that if you are a Felicity fan or stan, we want to hear from yes. you. We want to calibrate our feelings, our thoughts, everything with regards to Felicity based on your recommendations. That's right. If there are things that we need to check out, is there fan fiction we should be reading? Are there Instagram accounts that we need to be following? Are, are there questions we should be asking? Have we gotten some stuff wrong about Felicity? What's her astrological sign? And do we have to wait until book four to find I out? I kind of need to know because I feel like she's an Aquarius and that would explain my like low grade dislike of her. That's completely inexplicable. Yeah. Just as a fair. Leo, I think that's a thing that goes on with me. So I'm just going to put that out there. But I think she's an early spring baby. Oh, yeah. Okay. That would actually. But it's Virgin. It's Virginia. Who knows? The weather is not really indicative. She could be a Capricorn. I don't I mean, know. I would love to see a star chart. Do you think Valerie Tripp made one in preparation for writing these books? We're going to discover her true birthday. But in the meantime, we want you to be on the lookout. So we're posting an official bolo for all Felicity facts to come please our way. Do. And Allison, please share where people can reach us. Absolutely. So we are on Instagram, Twitter, and you can find in on Facebook, like Felicity. And you can find us at American Girls Pod on all three of those platforms. Yes. I don't want to hear any harsh feedback about what I've said about Firefest. If you're one of five people who actually feel bad for these preps and yo-yos who got taken, or you're a Ja Rule fan, stay away. I don't want to hear from you. <laughs> but if you have leads on Ashanti, Again, we do want to hear from we you. We love Ashanti. We're rooting for her. We want to support her. Please let us know. Please help us. Help us help Ashanti. So <laughs> until next time. Thank you for listening. We'll see you the next episode. Thank you. Thank you.